wife says me, far as I've been knowing, haven't time to snack around in comfort all the year. So when we get a little time before our boat gets going, we head on down to the library and this is what we hear. Come, Come on in, and look all around, around. There's, there's plenty for to see. Make your own self right at home, I love the library. Welcome to Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson, and today I'm talking again with Raquel Kraftchow. Um, last week we talked about um, her immigration to the United States from Israel and then her returning to Israel after high school to join the Israeli army and that experience and how it really gave her confidence. And um, today we were going to talk about what you did when you got out of the Israeli military and you came back to the United States. Mm-hmm. And what did you do then? Uh, so I moved back in with my mom in Albany, New York. And um, I worked, uh, let's see, I got out of the military in July and I, I, I found a job, and uh, once I was back in New York, I found a job and was working until January, at which point I enrolled in school in a uh, community college. And I uh, 
I quickly found myself really excelling in my studies. I remember they, when I, when I first enrolled in school, of course I had to take a placement test for math and I didn't score well, so they wanted me to take a, a low um, math course where I wouldn't even receive credit for. And I know that I had my, I, I'm good at math, I just, uh, things I haven't seen in a long time, I didn't remember how to do them, so they had me sign a waiver and I went into um, college algebra and I quickly excelled in math and all my other subjects and I held a 4.0 average for uh, the year and a half that I was in school. And my family was very excited about this, wanting because again, we don't have the financial means to pay for uh, a good school. But because I I was excelling in school and especially and I was interested in the field of mathematics, being a woman, it would be quite easy for me to receive a full scholarship for Ivy League school. And uh, my family urged me to do that, but um, I I decided on a different route. Uh, probably having to do with meeting a guy and <laughs> uh, wanting to focus my attention more more on that relationship than on school. So I ended up dropping out of school, and uh, and me and him moved together to Las Vegas, where he was originally from. So he had his father there. Okay, and. Um when we were talking last time, you had told me a really interesting thing about your time in Las Vegas, which is I had asked if you had gone back to school and you said there wasn't really motivation to go back to school. How come? Right. Uh, so I, at, the, at that time, I was uh, cocktailing at a trendy bar and I decided to go back to school. So I enrolled in UNLV where um, most of my teachers were actually just grad students that unpaid grad students so they were really unmotivated to teach anyway and then as I researched um, what it would be like to be a teacher in Las Vegas which is what I've always wanted to do I've always wanted to be a teacher uh, I discovered that the starting salary in Nevada was 25 grand a year while cocktailing I was able to make 50 60 grand a year so it didn't really make a whole lot of sense for me to go into debt uh, for student loans and then take a massive pay cut when I actually started my profession. So I once again dropped out of school. Wow. That is just such a difference. <laughs> yeah. I was in Vegas for five years, and uh, Vegas is not the f safest city in the world. And uh, and it was definitely the biggest city I've ever lived in. It was very it was very exciting for me, and I I did a lot of growing up there, um, a lot of challenging. Uh, it was definitely a challenging time in my life, and probably one that I've um, a time in my life where I made some some reckless choices but again it was it was very much a growing opportunity for me but after five years there uh, I decided that I wanted I wanted something that a little bit more settled a little bit more calm uh, my brother was in the U.S. Navy so 
uh, where he spent a lot of his time in San Diego. So after he got out of the Navy, he decided to settle in San Diego with his wife and start a family there. Um, so I decided to move to San Diego and be near family. Nice. Okay. Uh, so in San Diego, I... I got a job downtown uh, working in a 24-hour restaurant bar. So, I mean, the bar part, the alcohol wasn't 24 hours, but we were open 24 hours, and I worked the graveyard shift with uh, Max Krask, my good friend from uh, Petersburg. And uh, it was actually it was actually great. We had a lot of fun. Um, it was late night it was always a drunk crowd so it'd be quite entertaining and super high volume we were constantly moving I was the server and Max was my busser and we hit it off right away we worked really well together and when we'd get off of work at six seven in the morning we used to uh, take long walks <laughs> back uh <laughs> And, uh, and just talk and release all that adrenaline uh, from throughout the night. And uh, so that was, that was really nice. I have really fond memories of, um, of San Diego, of those late nights and um, long early morning walks. But I think um, I, was, I was doing this for two years, living there for two years. And I think really it was the graveyard shift really started to get to me. I wasn't really able to spend time with family because my schedule was completely opposite from theirs. And uh, later on, also my sister and my niece uh, moved from New York to live with me, but it was the same thing. I felt like what I needed, what I wanted was family and that sense of home, and I felt I felt like it was all there, but it just, I wasn't, somehow I wasn't a part of it. And I felt, I felt really restless again. And every time I start feeling stagnant or restless, I just, I just got to get away. I got to change something in my life. And uh, so my sister suggested that I go skydiving because it's something I've always wanted to do. I, I love heights. I find it really <laughs> exhilarating. And uh, and I was making really good money. She's like, why don't you try skydiving? And so I did. I went for a tandem jump. And my instructor was really impressed at how calm I was and willing I was to get out of the plane. And, uh, and he suggested maybe uh, trying to get solo certified. And once I was solo certified and build up enough jumps, I can even get a, a job as an instructor, uh, somebody to take other people on tandem jumps. And I thought maybe this is what I needed and just changing it up in my life and doing something and uh, helps to relieve the stagnancy. So I decided to pursue my solo certification. Um, I was on my eighth jump. At this point, I went from having two instructors to only one. Uh, we jumped separately, and I had to perform three maneuvers in my free fall. I had to turn to the right, turn to the left, and shoot forward. So I turned to the right, no issue. Uh, when I went to turn to the left, I must have jerked myself, done something, and I flipped on my back and I started spinning on my back. This had happened to me before in a previous jump, so I wasn't necessarily nervous, and I tried the maneuver to switch back into the proper position. Didn't work. 
So I tried a different maneuver. It didn't work. At one point, my instructor tried to grab hold of me, but managed only to put up, uh, because I was much smaller than him, I fell much slower. So he was quite further down from me, and he managed only to pull off one of my shoes. And uh, so I was, at this point, alone in the sky, spinning on my back, and I looked at my altometer. I was at 3,000 feet, and you're supposed to pull your shoe at 5,500 feet. So I felt I had no choice but to pull my, pull my chute. And I somersaulted through the lines, and I navigated my way down to earth, not understanding the perilous position that I was in until I reached the ground. And I see my instructor sitting there with his head in his hands, and all he would say to me is that he won't jump with me again. Uh, that's when it dawned on me just... Um, how close I came but I think what made the experience especially traumatic for me was because I had invited my niece that day to come along and watch me jump and um, I think I I was pretty consumed with guilt at that point so I I fell into my default which is gotta get away (laughs) Um, and I I started doing my research. I first was considering moving to Australia because uh, I knew that they gave working visas to people that do construction or bartend, and I could I'd be able to bartend. But I was 31 at this point, and the cutoff date for the visas was 30. So I speculated on other options and um, decided on looking for a teaching job because again, it's something I always wanted to do, and I. Um, I found I found a, a Tesla program and I called up and the woman asked me where in the world I wanted to go and I was uh, I had no idea <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it so it was really kind of like shooting a dart at the map of the world and I said Southeast Asia and she said well since you don't have a bachelor's degree Cambodia is probably your best bet so I um, I bought a plane ticket and moved to Cambodia six months later. Wow. And um, I should interject here that you're actually writing a memoir. And this is partially how I found out about this. And um, I mean, I knew you had come from Cambodia when you moved here. Um, How's the memoir coming? Um. Well, I was I was writing very diligently for about a year. I was writing every day, and I was sharing my writing with a number of people and receiving really positive feedback, which was encouraging me to continue writing as people wanted to hear the continuation of my story. And, um, and it felt great. I felt like I was uh, uh, perfecting my writing style. And then I, I reached a natural break, and I felt that I... I also needed to take a break and uh, process my emotions, just, uh, yeah, just take a break. And so right now I've been on about six months break (laughs) and I'm finding it difficult. I don't, I don't know, almost kind of like scared to look back at my writing and every time I look at my laptop and think about opening it up and, and writing and I just... 
I've just been getting nervous for some reason, but I I am going to get back into it and I am going to continue writing. But um, yes, I've had the opportunity to read this and you're a wonderful writer. Thank you. Um, You're writing, you can just get lost in the descriptions. I just feel like in reading your writing, you really get to experience like being there in Cambodia and the culture and the smells and the sounds and the yeah it's um and I love the pace of your writing too it's you know you don't you don't stagnate (laughs) oh well thank you I really appreciate that Um, feedback and so um I know, or was it Oren's class? Yes. Yeah, Oren had done a manuscript writing class last last yes. winter. Yes, yeah, and, and that's when you got to work on that. That was really helpful. Uh, it was really a really nice workshop, and really just wonderful to have a group of people to really dissect my writing and uh, and contribute really um, helpful feedback, and also also to read other people's writing and so I mean just I love people hearing hearing people's stories so that was that was a nice treat anyway to hear uh, other people's stories but also to to be able to see other writing styles and how other writers were able to express emotions or events so really really wonderful workshop I really gained a lot from it well I look forward to seeing your book in print memoirs are my favorite and um I look forward to seeing your book in print today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if you are just joining us, this is Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson, and today I'm talking with Raquel Kraftchow. And this is part two of a two-part series. And... Today we're talking about her travels around the world and um, how she ended up in Petersburg. Cambodia. You went to Cambodia. Yes. To and what to do what? So um, to teach. Uh, I always wanted to teach math. That's that's a language that I feel like I best understand. And, but, um, but there's much more of a need for ESL teachers, English teachers there. So I took a job at a language school and uh, loved the students. Uh, not sure how much English they actually learned, but again, <laughs> the school just wanted them to be exposed to it. So I would go in there and there would be a couple kids that uh, were able to communicate fairly well in English. and. Um, we definitely had a lot of banter in the classroom, uh, and but uh, I really, I really loved interacting with them and and helping them uh, help them to express themselves in English so that they would be able to communicate with me. And this uh, language school was that it was split into two sections. So there was a language school and an international school, and uh, the language school wasn't making very much money for them so they decided to close down the the English Institute but they asked me 
they asked me if I would come and work in the international school. The international school was also all Cambodian children, but they were they came from wealthy families. Uh, the parents had placed them in language schools from the time they were in preschool, maybe three years old, they started learning other languages. Many of my students spoke uh, three languages, Khmer, uh, Chinese, and English. A lot of them also spoke French, and, yeah. uh, and they were able to speak, understand, read, write in all these languages. So um, they were, it was definitely a different a, a different level of education than yeah. the English Institute. But um, so they gave me a job as a fifth grade teacher, which I taught uh, math, science, English, and geography. And uh, I did that for the first year. And then I knew that they were losing a math teacher in high school. So I requested to be switched to math. Uh, what they did is they moved the middle school math teacher to high school, and they put me in middle school math. So the second year, I was teaching uh, seventh and eighth grade math. Nice. Which is what you wanted to yes, do. which yeah. is exactly what I wanted to do. I know. I was so blown away when you came and, and when I first met you, and you said that that's what you'd been doing <laughs> and that you enjoyed it. <laughs> I did. It's, it's so funny though too because my own memories from middle school uh I middle school was such a traumatic time for me and I hated it and whenever I would think about that I wanted to teach like what age group it was always either elementary school or high school and I said absolutely no to middle school <laughs> and then uh I really discovered that I actually really love that age and I I seem to connect really well with uh middle schoolers you so. do and that's when that's when you first met my son yes it was middle school and we were in the throes of middle school oh <laughs> I think both of us at that time were wishing we could be through with middle school. Mm-hmm. It's a tough time. <laughs> for sure. But I feel like you really um, got us through that time. <laughs> and not just the math, just how you connected with him. And um, just, I I don't want to say strict, but you are strict. You're like, these are the rules, and this is how what I expect from you. And my son lived up to it. It's it's funny, like the it's always it's always strange for me to hear how people view me because I think I view myself in such a different way. And I know at our first couple sessions with Oliver, I just I felt like he was so nervous. Sometimes his hands would shake oh, yeah. so much he couldn't even hold his pencil. And so I always felt like, oh, I'm being too harsh and I would always I would always try to be so gentle with him. <laughs> And uh, so it's just, it's interesting. But he's always, he's always been very receptive to me. And I felt like, um, like I do have my certain rules, like math is always done in pencil and, um, and to bring his supplies. And I mean, it did take a little bit of, uh, of time to make sure that, that he followed those rules. Yeah. But, um, but I feel for in general that he was always very receptive to what I've asked of him. Yeah. Well, I was always so impressed with how you enjoyed working with that age because as as the mom, I was definitely (laughs) wasn't the most enjoyable period of parenting. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, but we got through it. So um, any experiences of living in Cambodia that you would like to share? 
Uh, well, so Cambodia is certainly certainly a different different world, and um, I really I think the thing that I noticed first when I arrived was um, was the scarcity, which it sounds kind of weird. I actually really loved it, and because a comparison, when I worked in uh, downtown San Diego, so there was. Uh, so where I worked in particular in this restaurant, we'd serve huge portions to these drunk kids and so much food got wasted. And I just, I remember this was the first time where I really, I really just kind of recognized this, like, this waste and it really bothered me. And at the same time, they opened right across the street what they called a Vegas style nightclub. And in this nightclub, it cost, every time I say this number, I'm like, it sounds so extreme that maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe I'm remembering wrong, but that it was $10,000 just to get a table. And it, they would serve champagne in the bathroom and just, I mean, extremely indulgent. And I just found myself suddenly really bothered by that. And um, so when I moved to Cambodia, and everything was just so simple. You go to the store and you don't have a million options. And it just, there was something really refreshing about it. I really, I really liked it. Um, I, I also discovered a lot about myself. When I went there, I, because uh, I, I don't mind, I'm not a vegetarian, but I have no problem being a vegetarian. So I, I just assumed that that's what I would be because I'm, I'm sure they were going to eat all kinds of weird things, which they do. And, <laughs> but I was really, I was really surprised at how, how open I was when I got there. And I, I really pretty much tried everything I was offered. Uh, I think, I think the reason why was, uh, people get so happy when you're willing to share their food with them. And I really felt like that was something that helped me to connect with uh, the local population there was by by eating their food. And I found that I've actually got a really strong stomach and nothing seemed to bother me and it really didn't taste. Oh, some things I didn't like the taste. But um, yeah, I have some, some, I had some food adventures that I didn't really like. <laughs> but... <laughs> But for the most part, I really enjoyed trying all the different food and seeing seeing people warm up to me because of that fact. Well, and that's what, when we were initially having the conversation about bravery, that's where that came from is um, from, reading, from reading your memoir uh-huh. and, and understanding how much you just you just really embraced being in Cambodia and you went out and you took part in the culture and the life and the local people and you dragged other people with you from (laughs) like roommates and other American teachers and um yeah yeah. I mean it was it was pretty terrifying I guess when I would venture out I've not terrifying for my safety because Cambodia really is a safe country, especially for women. Maybe it has to do with the fact that it's a Buddhist country, but there really isn't there. There there's pickpocketing and theft, but uh, not very much violent crimes. And um, and so, but I mean, I was definitely very nervous. I would I would step out of my house and I would feel very lost. Where am I going? What am I doing? But it's funny. The thing that really helped me 
the other expats, not not really. I think they kind of um, they they sought out more of the expat world, and I was trying to break away from that. I I didn't want to come to Southeast Asia to hang out with Europeans or Americans, and um, so I would find myself sitting alone in restaurants. And there's uh, a lot of children that peddle um, different things to sell to tourists, uh, primarily like macrame bracelets. And and I really I really hit it off with these kids, like eight, ten year old kids. <laughs> <laughs> so they would they they would um, I guess I don't know maybe I just wasn't ever scared of them stealing from me because I would leave my my phone on the table next to me and the kids would plop down on a chair next to me and on my phone and I would eat my lunch or dinner and uh, they would start getting more comfortable with me and plop down on my lap or <laughs> I know a little girl that she didn't she was five and she didn't speak any English and uh, so she came to me one day and she plopped down on my lap and she tugged on my hair that was in a braid and she tugged on her own hair so I braided her hair Aww. and um, and again there was uh, it was sweet they they would I would walk down the street sometime, and you're not supposed to wear a purse because, again, not only can your purse get stolen, but it's generally people that are riding on motorbikes will snatch a purse, and then they'll drag they'll drag the woman with the purse on the ground, so you can get hurt. So it's really not safe to wear a purse, but I would anyway. And I remember one of the little girls that I had befriended one day, she she would scold me. Uh, she would come up to me and take my purse and put it in front of me and have me wrap my arms around it <laughs> and kind of scold me. Or if my if my shirt rode up a little bit and showed, showed my midriff, they would come down and tug my shirt down. So they were... <laughs> They, they were very protective of me. And again, I would have experience with them how food helped with that. They had these little, um, I don't know what they are, they, they're shells that they, they fish out of the Mekong River, which is definitely not a very clean river. And, uh, and they, I'm not even sure if they're cooked. But uh, <laughs> but so they they sell them everywhere on the streets, and uh, so the kids asked me for a quarter so they can buy a bag of those, and then I was curious what they tasted like, so I asked them to try one, and I didn't know how to open them, so these uh, ki- kids with their dirty fingers they opened up these little shells for me and I I ate one and I'm like hmm it's good so then another kid came and the two of them were just opening up shells for me and I was eating them and I would I I told my co-workers about that and they were just they would look at me with a horrified look but (laughs) (laughs) but they must yeah Wow. It made the kids happy. And, yeah. And I didn't get sick from it. So. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> That's always a positive. But yeah. yeah, it developed, yeah, to share the food. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So do you want to talk about coming back to the United States? So I was in Cambodia for four and a half years. And I guess like my habit, um, I started feeling stagnant again. And again, I think the stagnancy arises from, I really, I have been seeking home. And when it starts to feel like, like I've been somewhere for an extended period of time, but it still doesn't feel like home, it's kind of like this question arises of why am I still there? So, um, 
I decided it was time to move on. I didn't know where I wanted to go. I didn't want to go back to the States because what I envisioned moving back to the States was another city like Vegas or San Diego, which is just another city, but same thing. And I'd probably get a job bartending or waiting tables and I would go back into the same storyline that I've already lived. And I didn't, I didn't want to do that. So I figured I would continue working abroad. Once again, I had no, no place that was really calling my name. But um, I thought maybe Latin America, so I researched that region. And Peru, uh, Americans can stay for, uh, for six months without a visa. So that would make it very easy because I'd only have to do border runs twice a year. So I decided to try Peru. But before going to Peru, I wanted to visit some people in the States. I had a friend in uh, Seattle. I had Max, who recently moved back home with his husband in Petersburg, and I have some family members in uh, in San Diego. And uh, so my route was going to be Seattle, Petersburg, San Diego, and then Peru. Petersburg was amazing. I was here in August, and it was a week of sunshine, and <laughs> it was just the most incredible place I've ever seen. And then I eventually arrived in uh, Lima, Peru. And right away, I just got the sense, even just flagging down a cab from the, from the airport, it was really a, a very um, coarse culture, if that word fits. Yeah. But um, the- well, You had called it a mock. Yeah, so it was it was quite macho, and I I learned more about I saw more of the machoism later on, but but it just it wasn't a very friendly feel from the beginning. But um, I was there, so I I caught a cab to a hostel that a friend had recommended, and um, I spent a few days in Lima and just checking it out, trying to envision myself living there, and I quickly decided that. I didn't feel like Peru or at least Lima was for me, but I'm already in Peru, so I might as well uh, I might as well travel, <laughs> check it out. And I I found myself in the city of Arequipa, um, and um, beautiful. I mean, Peru is beautiful everywhere that I've been. But um, while I was in Arequipa, I the hostel I was staying at. I met a volunteer worker there that said, oh, it's great to volunteer here. They, you, they just want you to hang out at the bar and talk to people, keep them, keep them at the bar, basically, and then they give you free room and board. So I said, oh, that's a pretty good deal. And, they, and he was leaving, so they were looking for another volunteer. So I said that I would volunteer, and um, my experience was much different than his, and I feel like it's because I, I, um, I'm a woman and for him, they they were just buddies. Yeah. And for me, they they were very quick. I don't have a problem working. It wasn't about working, but it was kind of almost being ignored. But then when they needed something from me, I had like right now, get up and do this right now. And I think most of their energy because um, they they were trying to use me more for my looks to uh, get people to stay. Uh, they they were very forceful about who I had to talk to. Uh, for example, there was um, a native Peruvian um, of uh, native heritage 
a really nice guy that I was really enjoying hearing his story and he spoke very well, very good English because he was a tour guide. And, uh, and so they, they interrupted my conversation with him to go and talk to some European guy. And, and so I just basically kind of like played the game, went over, do you need something to drink? How are you doing? Where are you from? And then I found my way back to the native guy and they were, they were very annoyed with me and they told me like, like point blank that like, you don't need to talk to him he doesn't have any money and and it became very apparent what what my job was supposed to be and then uh while I was in Arequipa I also hired a Spanish teacher thinking if I'm I realized how difficult it is to travel in Latin America not speaking Spanish and me and her she was in her early 30s I want to say and we hit it off right away and we became friends and didn't learn much Spanish, but it was very <laughs> nice uh, hanging out with her. And she came to visit me at uh, the bar of the hostel. And I, I sensed from the beginning it wasn't a place that she liked to visit to. She's like, no, Peruvians talk and, and um, they see a girl at the bar, so that makes her a certain kind of a girl. And I was very shocked. Um, when she she was talking to a Dutch guy, I remember, and the people at the hostel were making really horribly rude comments about how, oh, he can just take her to the bathroom and just really... Uh, and they were being very loud and vocal about it and really rude. And uh, we'd also... I'd, I'd have conversations with my Spanish teacher about... Uh, the rape culture in Peru, uh, how the police will not respond to uh, calls like that. They don't respond to domestic violence. And it's just it's just uh, women's reality there. And just seeing how they treated her at the bar and how they treated me to a less degree, but uh, still how they treated me, I, I felt that I didn't want to stay in Peru. I think that solidified that decision that it wouldn't be safe for me as a single woman. But I did continue. I went to, um, um, I did beautiful hikes. I hiked uh, Colca Canyon, which I think is either the deepest or the widest canyon in the world. I don't remember which. And uh, and I went up to Machu Picchu, which was wow. incredible. And uh, but um, I I didn't really know where I wanted to go from there. While I was in Peru, I met a girl that lived in Hawaii, and she suggested that I come out to Hawaii and stay with her. So I did, and I didn't. I didn't really realize that her living situation wasn't as secure as she led led me to believe. And I found myself couch surfing, which I really didn't like to be in that position. And my savings was running out, and Hawaii was just a very a uh, challenging place to get around. Uh, I remember waiting for the bus and the bus driver was slowing down, figured to stop for me, but he just, he kind of made a signal like it was, it was a weird intersection, so he kind of had to turn around. So I figured he was making the turn and then would stop for me. He turned around and drove away and um, <laughs> and people were not surprised by that. And they, they talked about just um, that distinction between the native Hawaiians and the Haoles. And um, of course, being, being a Westerner, American, white, um, you're, you're always going to to be confronted with with that difference whenever you go somewhere with a native population. Oh, yeah. There's always that distinction. And I feel um, 
through my travels, whether it, it was in Israel, I tended to make friends with the minority groups in Israel, it's Russians and Ethiopians and Cambodia, I interacted with Cambodians and, and Peru, I tried to interact with native Peruvians and it, it's, um, it's what I enjoy about seeing new cultures and I felt that uh, in Hawaii the native population was kind of out of bounds for me. I wasn't able to break into that world and uh, I really, it, that really made me feel like I didn't want to stay there. But the main thing was that I was running out of money. <laughs> I needed to make a decision. And because it's an island, I was afraid of getting stuck there and not having enough money to leave. And I remember I called my sister and um, just confused about what the right decision was. And she reminded me how much I loved Alaska when I was there in the summer. So I called Max and he said, are you on the plane? And I said, I could be. <laughs> and I bought a ticket and I got back to Petersburg in uh, mid-November, right before Thanksgiving, two years ago. Yeah. To show up in Petersburg in November is not usually when people come to Petersburg. No. <laughs> and I've been trying to run away from winter since I left New York. So <laughs> I was also pretty shocked to find my here that myself here at that time of year. But um but I'm really happy I came. And, yeah. you know, this town has so many wonderful qualities that it makes it makes the winters much more bearable. And your sister came up this summer to yes. visit you. Yes, yeah. and, and she loved it like I knew she would. And so she'll be back uh, this coming summer. She already got a job in a tender boat. So, oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, I'm so glad that you landed here. <laughs> it's been delightful to get to know you. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, I feel really blessed to be here. I, I just, it's a, it's a wonderful place to call home. I've been talking with Raquel Kraftchow about her journey getting to Petersburg. And this is, you've been listening to Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. And thank you to the Friends of Petersburg Libraries for making today's show possible. Um, if you want to hear this full conversation, we had to break it into two parts for the radio show, but you can listen to it at the library's website, psglib.org. 